Hello and welcome to another edition of the Metrospective. Pete McCarthy, Tim Britton with you. Episode number 57, we've named it for Johan Santana, the first and only no-hitter in the history of the New York Mets. And you would you would hope, and I guess we've thought for a while now, one of these young bucks would end up with uh, another no-hitter to join the club, but not quite yet for Jacob deGrom, for Noah Syndergaard, for the Matt Harvey, you name it, uh, in the past. But uh, Tim, we actually had some spring training baseball this weekend I, I can't say that I was able to watch much of it but it existed we're we're a little step closer to to getting to real baseball and what it's all about I mean the spring training stuff it's not quite the real thing you know it's it's nice like that first inning of grapefruit league games when you see uh, a guy who who might be pitching for your, your major league team over the course of the season in Rick Porcello out there. Uh, and then when you start to get into the parade of reserves very quickly <laughs> this time of spring, it's a reminder like, oh, right, it's it's still not quite baseball yet. Uh, you know, it's it's I think it's tempting to always look in, try to overanalyze what's happening at this point in spring. But I think if you talk to pitchers in particular uh, this early uh, it's just about, you know, it's it's fastball command, they'll tell you. It's just getting a feel on the mound. Uh, they're generally ahead of hitters at this point uh, in, in spring. So it's it's really uh, really hard to, to come up with anything meaningful off of spring training action. And I'm not just saying that because, like you, I watched about 15 minutes of, of the games <laughs> on, on Saturday and Sunday. Well, come on. Like, Stephen Matz gives up a, a leadoff home run to Harrison Bader. Who cares? I mean, it's a spring training. Even in a regular season game, that's not going to make or break your start. So, look, you want to see certain things, right? Is there anything in game action that you think will be meaningful this spring? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is the first time we see you on a Cespedes either run the bases or play in the outfield. Uh, what else comes to mind as being truly meaningful in-game action for Mets fans to keep an eye on? Yeah, I mean, I think Cespedes is a big one. Jed Lowry for a similar reason. Uh, and then I think you get into the the bullpen guys who struggled last year and Edwin Diaz and Jerry's Familia. Though, you know, those are guys who need to rebuild their confidence. And so good spring training results, kind of regardless of how they happen, uh, will be will be helpful in that regard. You know, a lot of what Familia went through was kind of his mechanics breaking down. Uh, he lost some confidence. You know, I know they put him on the on the injured list a couple times last year, thinking that some you know part of part of the reasons he went on the the IL when he did was kind of to give him a mental reset to see if he could kind of just get back to being who he was prior to 2019, and it didn't really work out. So I think with, with both him and Diaz, uh, the spring results are more important than they would otherwise be for veterans of their stature because of what happened last year. Uh, beyond that, you know. I've covered spring trainings where, you know, I remember covering the Red Sox when Jackie Bradley hit like 500 uh, as a guy from double A, made the team, uh, and then took two years, two and a half seasons to become a viable major league hitter. Uh, I've covered a spring where, where Shane Victorino didn't hit the ball out of the infield. The same spring, actually, that Bradley went went crazy uh, and then got MVP votes. So uh, it, it it's really, it's tempting to want to say something based off of what you're seeing uh, and to really scout it hard, but uh, I, it's you know, I really don't want to extrapolate much of anything, especially uh, in the February portion of spring games. 
even April sometimes fools you, right? Like Chris Shelton had that one year where he hit like 12 home runs in April or whatever it was, and it, it just fools you. He's not you know, going to be that kind of player. So, you know, look, spring training is what it is. You want to get out of it healthy. That's the A number one thing. That's the cliche. That's what the guys will tell you. But I, I think, too, you know, you mentioned a couple of things there, the bullpen and then Cespedes. And we did hear from Cespedes this weekend not exactly enlightening as you wouldn't expect, but at least he spoke. He said what he needed to say. He didn't want to live in the past, wanted to talk about the present, find the future, said his motivation is at a 12. Anything that you found particularly meaningful uh, with what Cespedes did finally have to say? Uh, I don't think anything that he said was as meaningful as the fact that he said something. <laughs> um, like that, that they... The Mets were able to get him to to speak to the media. Look, when I, I wrote about it last week that, you know, like Cespedes not talking to the media isn't an issue yet. If it persisted, uh, it, it wasn't a good look for a team that was really trying to preach accountability, for a team and a first-time manager trying to preach accountability uh, that, that had maybe escaped the team a little bit last year. Uh, and so that, you know, he, he came out. Uh, this quickly and, and kind of took an about face on, on what he said last week is a good sign for Luis Rojas. It's a good sign for some veterans in that clubhouse who, who, who might have pulled Cespedes aside to say, hey, like, let's not get off on this foot. You don't have to say anything about, about what happened last year in the offseason. You can, you know, you can no comment your way through a lot <laughs> and not get that criticized for it uh, as long as you're there to no comment. You're there to, to give a little, some bland statements about how you feel. Uh, so I, I think that was the best news out of that if you're the Mets. And, th and then you do get a sense of what his motivation level is, a 12 out of 10. He's beyond spinal tap and going to 11. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and the confidence he has that he can be a productive major league hitter this year, uh, you know, that's nice to hear. You got to see it on the field, but it, it's better than not hearing anything. What do you hear about the possibility of him being ready for opening day? Uh, I'm not willing to go there until we see him on the field defensively. I think if, the, if this were an American League team with a DH, you could start to think more plausibly about it at this point, uh, that you know the bat has looked fine from what we've seen in spring training. And again, I you don't want to read too much into live batting practice uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, if, if the Mets were in the AL East, you could say, okay, you know, maybe he starts as a DH on opening day. Maybe he's just a pinch hitter uh, early in opening day. Uh, but when, you, when you're trying to think of him as a left fielder, as a, a, a guy who's going to be uh, in the outfield for you on any kind of consistent basis, I, I think we've got to see him do that. Because that's, you know, the legs were what the injuries were to. It was a pair of heel surgeries. It was an ankle surgery. Uh, that, that's pretty significant for a guy who already had a history of leg issues. So we've got to see him do it a little bit before uh, I'm willing to say that he's, he's about ready to go. And Cespedes hasn't sprinted yet. He says he's at 80%. He's running in a zigzag pattern, but not yet able to run the bases. That is where he is at physically as far as it goes with his legs. You know, one thing I'll be curious about, Cespedes, with this contract, the way that it's structured and some of the incentives that are there, he could make $5 million if he's on the opening day roster. And I could see a situation where Cespedes feels he is ready and able to contribute, especially as a bat off the bench as a pinch hitter at the very least. And maybe the Mets push back a little bit, are more conservative with him, want him to be able to play in the outfield before they're going to you know, fork over that kind of money, or potentially just wait it out a little bit more. 
Could, could you foresee that being a bit of a push and pull over these next four weeks of spring training until we get to opening day? Well, I, I think it's important to note that it's not like it's $5 million then or, or he doesn't get that $5 million at all. It's kind of when he's on the, the injured list for a lower body, you know, a, a foot or heel or ankle injury, you know, his salary for the year is $6 million. Once he gets off, it becomes a prorated $11 million. So it's, you know, if he misses a week it, that's or, or two days, you know, that's two days of, of the extra $5 million. It's not the entire package, if that makes sense. So it's, you know, I think if he's close, like obviously he's going to want to push it. And that's the thing, that's the dynamic that will exist all season long in terms of not just being on the roster opening day, but, it, you know, all of his incentives are playing time based. They're plate appearance based. So... Uh, he's going to want to get as many plate appearances as possible. You know, he's not going to want to come out in an 11 to one game for a ninth inning at bat because uh, he wants to, to to get as many as possible to make as much money as possible. So I think that's what uh, makes it a, a more complex dynamic for a first time manager in Louis Rojas uh, that, you know, you're going to have this veteran who's coming off uh, some major injuries who you're going to have to be cautious with in terms of playing him. Uh, and he's going to want to play as much as possible to get as much money as possible. That's uh, interesting, so, and it's something that will last all year because it, it there's so many different markers for Cespedes to hit that this isn't just, you know, hit the magic one here and then you get back off a little bit. This will be all season potentially as if he's going to maximize what he can make. Yeah, it's, it's not like it's, you know, oh, you get an extra couple million dollars, you get to 500 plate appearances. It's, mm-hmm. It starts at 200 plate appearances, and it's like every 25 or 50 plate appearances, he gets another... Five hundred thousand dollars. He gets another million dollars, all the way up to six hundred and fifty. So uh, it is. It's going to be a constant thing for them over the course of the season. Uh, that to, to basically, we're going to have to have like these Uenis Cespedes plate appearance tracker uh, that we watch all throughout the year to see where he's going to end up financially. You know, I, it's the the really big numbers don't come in until we're talking about four hundred and fifty, four hundred seventy five plate appearances, which I think is probably you know for taking the over under this year on him, you're taking the under, uh, mm-hmm. but. Uh, it's still, you know, he's still, you know, five hundred thousand dollars is five hundred thousand dollars, even if you're, even if you're, you're in a Cespedes. Yeah, I, I don't think we'll be tracking Cespedes's plate appearances uh, like the Duffy's appearances down there in Port St. Lucie, <laughs> but he will, <laughs> and he will certainly know exactly where he is, where he needs to be, and I'm sure uh, seeking to to maximize, especially if he feels good. You know, that's where it gets tricky if he's run down, tired. He might understand getting a day off in that situation, but if he feels good and he wants to keep pushing and Luis Rojas wants to be a little bit more conservative, the organization wants to be a bit more conservative with him, well, that's where you could have some friction here during the season. It will be something to watch as far as Ioannis Cespedes and his situation goes. Uh, The other aspect of meaningful spring training action, you mentioned the bullpen and guys like Edwin Diaz, Juris Familia, trying to balance back Rick Porcello in that category as well. Had a long season in Boston. Uh, I invite everybody to read Tim's article, uh, catching up with Porcello, how he's able to bounce back years ago in 2018 with the Red Sox from a similar disappointing campaign the year before and trying to do the same this year with the Mets. But all of that goes under the umbrella now of one Jeremy Hefner, the former Mets pitcher, now the pitching coach. He's young. We know he's going to be more analytically sound. Uh, Communication is a word that comes up often. But what has stood out to you about Jeremy Hefner that makes him unique in this role, especially as a guy who has been a major league starting pitcher? 
first off, I think we both have to feel bad in retrospect that our 53rd episode was not the Jeremy Hefner episode oh. of, of the Metrospective. Was he upset? Uh, you know, I haven't heard anything about it yet, but I'm just <laughs> sure it's coming down the pike. Uh, 153, one we'll thing, get him back. <laughs> I think one thing that's interesting is that you know the, the Mets have gone from Phil Regan, the oldest pitching coach uh, in baseball in quite some time, to a guy who's literally 49 years younger. Uh, in, in Jeremy Hefner, he's, I think he's the second youngest pitching coach in baseball now. Uh, I think Seattle has someone younger. Um, well, so I went to to Twins camp because Hefner was the assistant pitching coach and the bullpen coach there last season. Talked to a bunch of pitchers there about you know what made Jeremy a good, what was good about him, what makes him good at his job. Uh, and I was I was uh, you know for a Mets fan, you should be encouraged by what I heard there. You had different guys with different styles and different approaches to the game. Uh, guys who were very analytically inclined to guys who didn't know anything about the analytics who said this was a guy who I could talk to to get better. Uh, a guy who, you know, Sergio Romo said it was like just another veteran pitcher in the clubhouse. He just happened to be a coach. Uh, he could talk things through, who treated you with respect but not condescension, uh, who, who wasn't, you know, if, if he said something to you and you didn't really like that idea, he didn't push back on you, didn't punish you for not, like, for not going with what he wanted. Uh, and if he didn't have an answer, like, would admit he didn't have an answer for something if you were confused on something, uh, and then would go and do his best to find it. So, it, you know, so much of the job of a major league coach these days is not just, you know, knowing how to throw a slider. It's knowing how to convey the proper amount of information uh, from your analytics department, your front office, and all that to the, the clubhouse. And Hefner being a player who you know, was active as recently as 2016, uh, is only 33 years old. I think he turns 34 in a couple weeks, uh, you know, has that relatability aspect with players uh, and knows how to speak their language as well as the language of an analytics department. Uh, you know, one, one guy on the Twins, Tyler Duffy, said he just really simplifies things for you uh, to the point where, you know, if you care about the analytics, he'll give you the, the backing to it. Uh, but if you don't, he just kind of puts it in words you can understand. Okay, that's that clicks for me, and I can go out there and use it. Uh, so I thought it was uh, it was all good things that I heard from that side of things from Minnesota. I think it bodes well for what the Mets are looking for in a pitching coach now. I mean, it's interesting. Like Hefner didn't have so much of this information when he was pitching in the major leagues. It's not as if he's someone that had it figured out how to use it for him, and now he's sharing that with others. All of this stuff is so new and and groundbreaking, and everyone's still trying to piece it all together and figure it out. It's kind of an interesting spot that he's in. Yeah, I mean, it, like I said, a lot of that job has changed. And he said, you know, the the core of the pitching coach job isn't different. It's applying inform, it's using information to get across to your pitchers that allows them to take it out to the field and be better. It's just that a lot of that information used to be experience you know I've, I've been in this in this spot as a pitcher this is what I did here's what you can do now a lot of it a lot more of it is quantitative uh, you know you're using uh, edgertronic and Rapsodo cameras to get guys angles on the ball uh, track man data Hawkeye like all of this stuff that I just off as if I understand it all um, and it's it's being able to explain it to a player in a way that's useful to that specific player like you know Duffy was a guy in Minnesota who was like, I didn't know what anything meant until I talked to Hefner when he was the Twins' advanced scout in like 2018. Whereas Trevor May in Minnesota was a guy who really craved that information and went deep on it. And he was working with Hefner on a, a deeper and more thorough level than some of his teammates. Uh, and that really helped him get better as well. Uh, so it just seemed like, you know, Hefner's the kind of guy who can tailor 
his approach to you based off of who you are. Like it's it's going to be a different approach for Jacob Degrom and Marcus Stroman and Noah Syndergaard and Edwin Diaz and all the way down the list of of pitchers on the Mets staff. Uh, so it was encouraging that so many different you know a, a diverse group of Twins pitchers all got something out of working with him uh, in the last couple of years. And you have to, I mean, for any teacher, any coach, right, you have to be able to relate to different people, be able to teach different styles, different things click uh, for, for different pupils, right? So, you know, that's part of it. It seems like at least in Minnesota, Hefner was able to do that. And now in a bigger chair is the uh, pitching coach with the Mets, and we'll see how he's able to make all of that work. You know, the other thing that's fun in spring training, especially the early action, sometimes you get to see some of the young prospects and, you know, not like Tim Tebow necessarily, but Keith Law had his top 100 prospects new to the athletic. You can check that out uh, and see uh, the top 100. But it's interesting, there are four Mets as part of that top 100. Now, none of them, Andres Jimenez, who's been a top 100 guy in the past, is there a young player, Tim, generating some buzz that there's at least some curiosity about we know you know the Mets uh you know they don't have that a number one prospect right now that's right on the cusp of the major leagues but there is some talent when you get deeper into the minors yeah I I think you know those those four prospects that made Keith's top hundred uh Ronnie Mauricio Francisco Alvarez Matthew Allen and Brett Beatty they're all kind of a couple of years away at this point, you know, Mauricio probably gets to high A in St. Lucie this year. Everyone else is behind him. So we're not talking about guys who are going to really impact the 2020 Mets, probably not the 2021 Mets. Uh, so if you're, if you're looking for nearer impact guys, I mean, Jimenez is still one of them. I think this is going to be a, a huge season for him coming back off of what was a very disappointing 2019 uh, where, you know, kind of, He'd gotten a good chunk of playing time in Double A in 2018. He goes back to Binghamton in 2019 and, and struggles a lot at that level. Kind of got out of his advanced plate approach that had made him a good prospect. Uh, recovered a, a, a good deal in the Arizona Fall League. Won the AFL uh, batting title. And there have been, you know, I remember covering Travis Shaw in Boston. Was a guy who had a miserable season in Double A. Had a great couple weeks at the AFL and then really took off after that point. And you know, had been a non-prospect and became a prospect and an everyday player in the big leagues with. I think 30 home runs in a season. Uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen for Andres Jimenez, uh, but he is a guy who it'll be really interesting to see how he rebounds from from last season's disappointment, whether he puts himself right back on the major league radar. Because if he do, if he does do that, then you've got some interesting decisions to make with your roster construction. You know, going into 2021, uh, for instance. Other guys who could help this year more on the pitching side of things. I think you know David Peterson started for the Mets on Monday. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a guy who. Uh, a first-round pick a few years ago. Not really a guy who's going to come in and be an ace for his staff in a couple of years, but uh, could be a good middle to back end of the rotation starter on, you know, and just how valuable those guys can be uh, before they hit arbitration and start really making money. Uh, you know, Franklin Killame is a guy coming off of Tommy John surgery that he had 18 months ago. Pitched really well for the Mets down uh, for Double for A at the end of the 2018 season when they got him back for his Drupal Cabrera then had the, the TJ surgery. Uh, so he's, you know, this is his last year with an option. So it's an interesting year for him, whether they go, you know, he was starting back then or whether they look at him in relief because he's going to be limited innings wise to an extent coming off the surgery uh, to try to expedite the path to the majors. Cause he's got big stuff and he's a big guy. He, he can, he can stand eye to eye with Dylan Batances, which no one else in that clubhouse can do. I don't <laughs> think. Uh, so I think that's what you're looking at. You're not looking at really the, the guy who's going to come in, 
and and change the course of your franchise in 2020. There, there's no one in the system that will do that. But there are some pieces that can be useful this year and probably be, play bigger roles uh, next year and might determine things the Mets do in the offseason, depending on how they look in, in 2020. And it is interesting for an organization that's dealt Jared Kelnick, who is number eight on Keith Law's list, as well as Simeon Woods, Richardson, and Anthony Kay, who did not make uh, the top 100. Now, that's a lot of talent to deal in the span of mm, about a year. And yet, yeah, the Mets' arms is, again, it's lower, as you mentioned, but there is there is some strength there. Yeah, and I think that goes back to uh, the, the job the Mets have done in the draft in recent years. I mean, we've, we've seen... You know, Kellenick as the number six pick, I, I think he was a top 10 guy on, on Law's list uh, within two years. I mean, I think the Mets liked him as a pick, and he's, he's exceeded everyone's expectations as a minor leaguer. That's sort of, you know, they got value uh, out of that number six pick, even if it's working for a different organization right now. And then the job they did in last year's draft as well, uh, getting Allen and Beatty, kind of two first-round talents in the first and third round, uh, you know, it's it's... Not easy to get uh, two top 100 guys within the first six months after the draft, but they were able to do that. And the job they've done on the international side of things, you know, Mauricio and Alvarez are, are two of their biggest international signings ever. Uh, you know, Ahmed Rosario also in that, that conversation uh, and guys that have lived up to the hype so far. Uh, you know, it's really interesting to read uh, Keith on, on Alvarez, who I think was down around number 50, but a guy who, mm-hmm. as a, a, a catcher who was putting up big numbers uh, as a teenager, coming stateside which you almost never see uh and has the ability to stay behind the plate as the catcher you know that's that's an mvp type player uh there's that kind of potential in francisco alvarez so i think he might have as high a ceiling as anyone in the system even if his distance from the major leagues makes him a a harder bet and that's what keith wrote uh, mvp type upside because of the combination of average on base power potential and he's good enough behind the plate that they think he'll be able to stick there uh, again, Francisco Alvarez. So uh, that's some, some good things for the Mets, uh, potentially down in the system, down the road, uh, that can help them out. All right, Tim, so next episode will be number 58 for the Mets. Again, not a banner number, no Johan Santana type of player on this list. Josh Smoker, Henry Mejia, Alais Soler, and Luis Rosado. Those are the only players that have ever worn the number 58. I do have a bailout if you want to take it. I think Henry Mejia would be the guy, but he was kind of like banned from baseball for performance dancing <laughs> drugs. So there's, there's a, it's a little more than just a guy who would stomp after saves. You know, there's a longer story there. Where do we, do we want to be the moral police here and uh, and not give it to Mr. Mejia? Just, just to check, Ale Soler did not throw a no hitter for the Mets. No, because okay. I no. thought you know. Well, maybe a start in Arizona or something. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think Mejia has a complicated legacy. Um, as a guy who was actually banned from baseball for a brief period of time. Uh, I-, I know he's somewhere this spring. I don't know where. Uh, I-, I wondered if, if anything was going to happen with him last year when he was in- with Boston and-, and pitching for their affiliates. But it seems like the it's time away from quiet. the game really 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 hurt him uh i am interested in your bailout i i will play the bailout card well it it is the number 58 and do you know the mets have played 58 years of baseball there we go is that enough of a bailout i guess not if it's there you go (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm just trying to think, like, what do we name this? The the Mets anniversary episode? <laughs> that is a problem for our esteemed producer, Adam Gracia, and he will have to come up with something to put as the title of this podcast. But, I mean, come on, I like Josh Smoker, but I, we, can't, we can't be necessarily naming a podcast for him. So I'm trying to be creative with the number 58. You know, I'm looking forward in the future... We could start playing with the years and like, oh, this is a good season, bad season, whatever. We could do a little bit of that. But these these jersey numbers, they dry up a little bit. Maybe somebody's wearing 58 in camp. I mean, it, it's tough right now. So 58 seasons of Mets baseball. You call it a cop out. That's fine. I don't I don't mind. But I think that's the best way to go here, Tim. I'm thinking the number approach would have worked better if this were an NFL podcast. We'd be like, yes, <laughs> offensive line time. Let's get into it. Yeah, we need, you know, you need like a bunch of those retired numbers low so that way the players are forced to wear number uh, 67, let's say. But we don't quite have that with the Mets. So, all right, so we'll, uh, 58 years of Mets baseball will be celebrated as part of the next podcast. And yeah, the Johan Santana podcast comes to an end here. I think we did him justice. We didn't, you know, uh, have the banner moment maybe at the top, but. We stayed healthy throughout the whole 25 <laughs> minutes here, so that's pretty good, too. All right, Tim, uh, we'll be back with you Friday morning, the next retrospective coming your way. Always a pleasure, my friend. Oh, pleasure's mine. Adios. Adios.